by the power of the Holy Spirit working through word and sacrament. Then we hunger and thirst for the righteousness of God. My friends, it's just that simple. It's in the divine service that he's there for you, that he delivers the forgiveness. That's where he promises forgiveness will be. Uh, And so that's why it's so important uh, to be in church. We long that God would answer the prayer when we pray, deliver us from evil. Get me out of here. Get me out of this sin-filled world. And that is Jesus Christ uh, who says, Do not count their sin against them, for my blood has paid the price for that. Now on 95.7 FM, it's Proclaiming the One with Pastor Clint Poppy and Pastor Adam Moline from Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska. Welcome once again to Proclaiming the One. I don't know if I'm ever going to get used to that promo intro thing that uh, our friend Jim Kirk put together, but uh, it is pretty cool, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. Uh, I don't know if I'm supposed to introduce ourselves after that introduction or what, so (laughs) bear with us here as we're... uh, uh, getting used to the uh, modern and new technology, proclaiming the one, our opportunity to look at the upcoming readings in our church here. I am Pastor Clint Poppy. Along with me is Pastor Adam Moline. We are privileged to be pastors at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska. Today, we're looking at the third Sunday in Advent. Third Sunday in Advent. You know what that means. We're going to finally get a little John the Baptist stuff here. So, Pastor, would you uh, give us the, uh, do the honor of reading the introit, which is really kind of a chopped up kind of a thing today. And in this introit, we have the bulk of it being portions, selected verses from Psalm 80, Psalm 80, and the antiphon, um, really, really, really chopped up portions of Isaiah 62, 11, Isaiah 30, verse 30, and 30, verse 29. We'll sort all that out here in just a minute. Pastor? Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Lord, you are favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. Will you not revive us again, that your people may rejoice in you? Let me hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people, to his saints. But let them not turn back to folly. Okay, we've got lots of uh, themes that are uh, bouncing around back and forth here. And so it might be a little little difficult for us to narrow down a, a specific theme today. But right off the bat, we have the word rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Okay, Pastor, what's the big deal with the pink candle on the Advent wreath, the candle of joy on the third Sunday in Advent. We have kind of a similar tradition or custom where we have a a different colored, a pink candle in um, Lent. So um, how how, uh, theologically and 
liturgically significant is that? Well, it is a uh, a neat thing that we do uh, in the season of Advent. It is a penitential season, uh, maybe not quite to the extent that Lent is penitential, but it still is. It has that penitential nature preparing us uh, sinful people to receive uh, our Lord who comes in flesh at Christmas time. So we have that penitential thing going on where we uh, leave out a little bit of the liturgy. Uh, we don't sing the hymn of praise and uh, also the altar is dressed in purple or blue uh, as a penitential reminder for us. And then in the midst of that, in the third Sunday of Advent, we have this uh, pink Sunday uh, where we hear about joy and rejoicing and we take a break from that penitential season to rejoice in the promises of God, the gifts of God, uh, and the hope that we have uh, that comes from God. And so that rejoicing is a, a kind of a great thing to have here in the midst of penitential season. Uh, and that's what this third Sunday of Advent's all about, rejoicing. It's uh, It seems kind of odd that in a time of repentance, penitence, soul-searching, and reflection, that we could also have joy. And I think God is uh, teaching us very clearly, in spite of or along with our our human traditions and pink candles and all that kind of stuff, I think God is teaching us that uh, joy is more than just being happy. Joy is a state of mind, a state of being, it is the full knowledge and faith that our sins are forgiven, not by what we do or how we feel, but by the bloody death and glorious resurrection of Jesus. That's the heart, core, soul, and center of joy. And if you don't have that, no matter how happy you are, you're never going to be full of joy. We, uh, we move on with our introit here as we look at the readings for the third Sunday in Advent. The Lord is at hand. Now, that, that's a pretty common Advent theme. Uh, Christ is coming. Christ has come. Christ will come again. Eh, that's pretty typical Advent, and uh, that shouldn't surprise us at all. The line right before that, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Now, with the exception of this particular introit, I don't know that I ever use the word reasonableness in any other context. So let's break it down a little bit. If somebody is being reasonable or if somebody is being unreasonable, what would that look like, Pastor? Well, um, this is one of those things we deal with. Uh, I have four kids at home that uh, we deal with reasonableness all the time. Are you being reasonable or not? Um, reasonableness is a, a willingness to work with someone, to um, uh, forgive and overlook their faults so that you still get something accomplished or done. Um, unreasonableness is when we're stubborn or difficult uh, or uh, unwilling to overlook faults or unwilling to work with someone or uh, cooperate or, or um, give in. And, and this prayer then is a prayer to God that he be reasonable with us, uh, that he overlook our guilt and our sin, uh, that he let everyone know that he is reasonable with us and that he's merciful to us and gracious to us. Uh, that's how I would understand this particular uh, call for reasonableness. Yeah, and I think the the uh, 
examples of people being unreasonable or uh, we ourselves being unreasonable uh, hit home pretty hard. When our temper is raging, when our emotions have the best of us, it's pretty hard for us to be reasonable and to carry on a reasonable conversation or come to a reasonable conclusion. When, uh, when we are irrational in our thinking, it's impossible for us to be reasonable in our speaking, doing, and acting. And this is, uh, this is pretty common for human beings, but God is the perfection of reasonableness. And God looks at the facts. He's not carried away by emotion. And based on the facts, we are asking him to be reasonable and deal with us. Now, again, that can be a scary thing. I'm a sinner. And a just God acting reasonably is going to send me to hell. That's what my reason tells me. But God's reason is a gospel reason as well. And that's why we can call upon the, the rationalness, the logic, the reasonableness of God in his dealing with us. And that's exactly where our introit goes. Lord, you were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. The people who didn't deserve it received grace and mercy from God. The next line is the clincher. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. Pastor, how in the world can it be reasonable that God would forgive sin? That doesn't seem to make any sense. Our sin has earned for us sin, death, and damnation. What's Where's the reason here? Yeah, uh, that uh, sounds unreasonable at first. The thing we deserve is punishment. And yet, you know, I think it's helpful to put it in terms of a parent-child relationship again. Uh, when my child does something uh, against the rules of the house or uh, breaks something, they might ask me to deal with them reasonably, uh, meaning to show grace and mercy rather than to uh, give them the full punishment that maybe it deserves, a time out or, uh, you know, uh, no dessert or whatever the punishment might be. Uh, so if I can be reasonable, uh, then I can also overlook that sin or in this case, as we're hearing about in the introit, uh, see where that sin has been paid for in another way uh, by blood, by suffering, by death, by Jesus on the cross uh, to remember the forgiveness of sins that is earned by the blood of Jesus and uh, uh, knowing that without that shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. So the reasonable thing to do would be to forgive the sin for the sake of Christ who paid for the sin. And uh, that is the, the contradiction that our minds and our hearts need to wrestle with. Because what's reasonable to us is that God would send us to hell. Because of God's gospel, uh, and since we're looking at Old Testament, Testament reading here, we look, should look at the Old Testament word, his steadfast love, his chesed, um, because God is love, steadfast love, his reasonableness is the gospel. To forgive us for Christ's sake, to give us pardon 
and peace. And when we are down, as we often are at certain parts of our life and even during the upcoming Christmas season, we need God to revive us again and again. And that's exactly what he does. How? With the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing new, nothing new under the sun. And yet it's so easy for sinful human beings to forget. Getting down and needing to be revived. Keep that in mind. When we come back from our break, we're going to take a look at the gospel reading for the third Sunday in Advent. Matthew 11, verses 2 through 10. Get out your Bibles. We're going to have a lot of fun with this one. Don't go away. You are listening to KNNALP 95.7 FM, Lincoln, Nebraska. Welcome back to Proclaiming the One. This is Pastor Clint Poppy. Along with me is Pastor Adam Moline, Vicar Albert Bader. We serve here at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska. Each week we look at the readings to help you plan and prepare for your upcoming worship. And today we're looking at the readings for the third Sunday in Advent. We usually get two Advent Sundays that focus on the person and work of John the Baptist. And uh, while today we don't literally have Jesus standing on Jordan's bank and crying, uh, we're pretty close. We're pretty close. So, Vicar, Matthew 11, 2 to 10, and, you know, we have this optional verse of verse 11. So why don't you just give us the whole, uh, the, the whole enchilada, the whole kit and caboodle. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight in the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up. And the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, and I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. 
Uh, yeah, I would say that uh, that is a very significant verse that uh, should be read, and uh, we'll see if we can get our uh, inserts adjusted to reflect that. Help me, uh, help me remember that, Pastor Moline. So, Matthew 11, when John heard in prison about the deeds of Christ. Well, we got two things going on here. We have A, the deeds of Christ, and B, the fact that John is in prison. So um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let you uh, take, take one of those, Pastor. Tell me, uh, in a nutshell, in a nutshell, how, um, how and why John ended up in prison. Yeah, there's a, a little bit of a backstory that goes to that. Um, the uh, ruler uh, at that time in this area was uh, the Herodian dynasty. And uh, you know Herod the Great, who was the uh, king uh, at the time of the birth of Christ, which is probably uh, uh, 28 to 30 years before this. And uh, Herod was kind of a paranoid guy. Uh, he had uh, quite a few children with uh, a couple different wives. And uh, when Herod dies, uh, those kids divide up uh, his former kingdom into four parts. Now, these are just puppet kings. They're kind of like governors in that regard. Uh, but they are all still underneath the authority of the Roman emperor uh, at this time as well. So these uh, uh, different uh, tetrarchs, or the four uh, that took over for Herod, um, they all have wives and families of their own. The uh, Herod then, they're all named Herod too, so it makes it more confusing. Uh, the <laughs> oh, Herod, this, this is my brother Daryl, this is my other brother Daryl. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, okay. So the Herod that is uh, ruling in this area, uh, he takes uh, for his own wife, the lady that had been the wife of his other brother. And uh, John the Baptist, being a faithful pastor, says it's not good for you uh, to sleep with the lady who is your brother's wife. Um, it's not good for you to have this woman as your wife. So uh, uh, after much prodding from this lady, Herod arrests John the Baptist and holds him uh, in the uh, prison at his uh, his castle, Macarus, uh, and actually Josephus mentions that John the Baptist was held in prison at the temple of Macarus, and in some of the excavations that have happened here lately, they even have a pretty good idea of the exact spot that John the Baptist was probably held in prison at Macarus by Herod for saying that uh, sleeping with your brother's wife is not a good idea. So John is a faithful pastor. John ticks off the political quasi-church authority and ends up in, in the Kuspa. Uh, uh, he's behind bars, and his fate is unknown at this point in time. Now, we also know that John had followers. John had disciples. John preached out in the wilderness, and throngs went out to hear him. He preached a baptism for the remission of sins. He dressed funny. He ate funny. And uh, we got all these kind of things going on. So this John, this John the baptizer, he's in prison. And while he's in prison, he heard about the deeds of the Christ. Vicar, tell me some of the deeds of the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior, Jesus, 
that John more than likely heard while he was in prison. What was Jesus up to? Well, prior to this in Matthew's Gospel, we hear about a lot of the deeds of Jesus, uh, such as healing blind men, healing lepers, healing lame people, calming the uh, storm, and all these sorts of things, all pointing to the fact that he is the promised Messiah who was to come. He is the Son of God in the flesh. Okay, so he's hearing about many of the miracles of Jesus. Um, maybe he's, hear- he's hearing some of the teachings too, but specifically here in our text, ele- uh, Matthew 11, chapter 2, it specifically says the deeds, the action. And uh, Vicar jumped the gun a little bit. That's okay because this is where this is all going. And um, John is convinced by the deeds of Jesus that this Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. How and why would John be convinced that Jesus is the Messiah based on the deeds that had been reported to him? Well, um, he knew the Old Testament scriptures because he was a uh, a good Jew in that regard. He went and also to, a faithful pastor. Right, and a faithful pastor. <laughs> and uh, uh, he, he went to church on a regular basis and heard the Old Testament where uh, the prophets and uh, uh, even Moses foretell of the coming of the Messiah. And uh, Isaiah says some of the things you look for is a guy who's doing the things the vicar just mentioned, uh, healing the blind, uh, uh, giving sight to the, the blind, uh, hearing to the deaf, uh, ability to speak to the, uh, the mute, uh, the lame, walking, all these things. When, when somebody comes and does that, then they're the Messiah. Okay. So the evidence is clear, and the message of John has been, um, this is not about me. Uh, this is not a cult of personality kind of thing where I want uh, uh, I want a new uh, record contract and uh, I want to I want to build a fancy church in my name. John is very very clear. He's preparing the way for someone else. Yes, he is preparing the way for the Savior of the world. In fact, early in the Gospel of John, after Jesus is baptized, John points to Jesus. And says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We also see that John said, He, Jesus, must increase. I, John, must decrease. So there is, uh, there is no personality, cult leadership, um, rock star pastor attitude at all in John the Baptist. He's a quirky fellow. But he is a faithful man of God. He knows his scripture. He preaches the scripture. And he loves the people that God has entrusted to him. Right off the bat, verse 3, well, I guess it's already in verse 2. He sent word by his disciples. So the disciples of John are the people that followed John, wandered around uh, with him out in the wilderness, listened to his teaching, and they said to Jesus, John sends his disciples to Jesus, and they ask Jesus a simple word. Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Now, Pastor... Um, 
we could spend an entire program on this topic, but I don't want to confuse or bore our listeners. It is a very modern approach to look at this and to say, oh, that John, he was so depressed, he was so confused, he didn't understand his mission, and doubting John uh, needs, needs to be affirmed and confirmed. That's why this is happening. Why is that total barnyard manure? Well, it's total barnyard manure because uh, John already in the womb uh, was the first person to recognize who Jesus was, uh, leaping for joy in his mother Elizabeth's womb when uh, Mary, uh, newly pregnant, comes to visit Elizabeth. Uh, John had also uh, baptized Jesus and said he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He'd seen the dove descend from heaven and heard the voice, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Uh, they're really uh, John has been uh, told and confessed multiple times that he knows exactly who Jesus is. And this is even the old way that the church fathers understood it. Um, St. Ambrose thinks uh, John asked this question neither in ignorance nor in doubt, but instead in a Christian spirit. In other words, for the sake of uh, his disciples, uh, Luther writes in his sermon for this uh, this text, it's evident that John knew very well that Jesus was uh, he that should come, for he had baptized him and testified that Christ was the Lamb of God uh, and uh, heard the voice from heaven, just as I just said. So there's really no way we could say that uh, because John's in prison, now he's doubting or whatever. He is still being a good and faithful pastor, even from the prison cell, and for the sake of his own disciples, and then, by extension, for the sake of you who are hearing this gospel lesson a thousand years later, um, he's sending people to look to Jesus. He's pointing to Christ. That's what faithful pastors do. Uh, Faithful pastors get out of the way so that Jesus can be the predominant thing uh, in the church. Yeah, that's very well said. And I would I would submit that uh, this text is in very, very uh, real uh, case, a text about uh, doubt and worry and uh, confusion with regard to the identity of Jesus, but not John. John is concerned about the doubt and the worry and the confusion of his followers, of the people that have been entrusted to him. And we want to unpack that when we come back and hear what Pastor John the Baptist is up to as we continue our look at Matthew 11, verses 2 through 11. Don't change that dial. We'll be right back.
Talk Back, Sundays at noon on KNNA. Welcome back to Proclaiming the One. Pastor Clint Poppy, Pastor Adam Oline, Vicar Albert Bader. We're looking at the readings for the third Sunday in Advent. We would love to have you come and hear these readings in person. We worship each Sunday at 8 and 1030 with Sunday school for all ages in between. We also worship on Wednesday evenings at 630 and Wednesday evening this coming week, December 19th, is our children's Christmas program. Come and hear the children tell the story of the Christ child, 6.30, Wednesday, December 19th. Everyone is invited, and it is always a marvelous time when we hear the children's joy and enthusiasm for the real reason of the season, Jesus Speaking of Jesus and the real reason for the season, how was that for a nice smooth, segue. smooth, yeah, ooh, ah, yeah, okay, yes, uh, remember, we're still rank amateurs at this whole uh, radio thing. We've been talking here in Matthew 11, 2 to 11, with regard to the person and work of John the Baptist. If you hear uh, from the pulpit or in a Bible study, or if you read in a commentary or uh, something online, that this text is really about the doubt of John the Baptist, don't fall for it. This is a modern-day Uh, history revisionism lie. There is absolutely nothing in Scripture that would teach us that John was not absolutely sure and confident that Jesus is the Messiah, the Savior. He sends his disciples to Jesus with a question. Are you the one, or should we wait for someone else? Pastor, explain the significance of that exact question in order to defend what we are putting forward and what the church fathers have put forward for hundreds and hundreds of years, that John is simply being a faithful pastor. Yeah, faithful pastors um, never want the gospel or the church service or uh, even the faith of the people to be uh, in themselves or about themselves. Their job is to get out of the way so that Christ can shine through and uh, we, we really struggle with this as people because we want to idolize the pastor or um, even uh, wider church than that, the, the leaders of a church body or those we want to be leaders for a church body. We like to imagine uh, that if our guy is in office, that things will be uh, immeasurably more wonderful or if... Uh, uh, the other guy is in there that things will be worse. But really, the church is all about Jesus, and all these people are just idolatry. So John, being a good pastor, he doesn't want these people to be crushed because he's in prison or their faith to be destroyed because, uh, as we know, he's going to be beheaded and killed for the faith. Rather, he wants them to have their faith firmly fixed on Jesus. He wants Christ to be the object uh, that their faith trusts in. So he sends them with this question, Are you the one who is coming? Uh, which is, a uh, in the Greek there, it's the coming one. Uh, it's a word that is... Uh, 
reminding us of the Messiah, uh, or shall we look for another one or watch out for someone else? And uh, John knows the answer. He wants them to go see. They know the scriptures as well, to uh, hear from Jesus and to have faith that trusts in Christ. And so he directly sends them to Jesus. He points them to talk to Jesus. And what better way is there to have someone come to faith and to give them Jesus, to point them to Christ, to send them to Christ. Uh, and so there we see John being that faithful pastor. Isn't it, uh, isn't it amazing and somewhat ironic that John sends his disciples to Jesus and what he is expecting out of Jesus is for Jesus to say the exact same message that John the Baptist has been preaching for months and months and months out in the wilderness. Uh, parallel that to the situation today when a faithful pastor has members of the congregation that uh, go off to college, move to a different city, uh, retire closer to their cancer doctor or whatever. What do we want? We want them to be connected to a faithful congregation that has a faithful pastor that will say the exact same message. The good news of Jesus Christ for poor, miserable sinners like us who doubt and struggle with sin on a daily basis. This isn't about the doubt and struggle of John the Baptist. It's about the doubt and struggle of everyone else in the whole world. And a faithful pastor, even with their doubts and struggles, continues to point people to Jesus. Vicar, when we, uh, we see the disciples confronting Jesus and they ask Jesus the question, Jesus does not give them a sermon. Jesus does not give them a long and lengthy discourse. Jesus does not chew them out for their weak faith. What does Jesus point them to? He points them to the same things that John had already heard about and told about. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up. And also, apart from just the deeds, the miracles of Jesus, the poor have good news preached to them. They hear about how God has come to them to deliver them from their sins from the poverty that they have in this world. Okay, so we we have those miracles of Jesus that are pointed to. Um, the Old Testament continues to say that when the Messiah comes, these things will happen. These are signs of the time. And we see also from the book of Isaiah that good news will be preached to the poor. Pastor, is this some kind of liberation theology that we're talking about here where uh, we're going to overthrow government and uh, anarchy is the way of the day. And um, uh, in this respect, the uh, poor people who have suffered will, will now receive riches and blessings from God simply because they're poor. Is this what we're talking about here? No, not at all. Um, if we look at uh, the rest of Scripture, we can see that's clearly not the case. Jesus says, the poor you will always have with you. Uh, we also have uh, the uh, the fact that um, uh, 
Christ teaches that we ought to respect our government, uh, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, give to God the things that are God. Paul talks about how we ought to pray for our rulers. Uh, There's no uh, revolution that is being discussed or talked about here in this text. Um, And uh, the good news being preached to the poor is the same good news that is preached to the rich. Uh, and to all those people in our world, that Jesus has come to suffer, bleed, and die to forgive all their sins, and that in the world to come, um, we won't have to worry about these distinctions that uh, we try to divide ourselves up with, um, poor, rich, um, you know, how, I don't know, all the things, keep track of all the things we divide ourselves up to in now. Yeah. Republican, Democrat, that won't be the case in heaven. There will only be... Uh, Christians will all be united together in one body, the body of Christ, forever in God's kingdom. I think it's significant, too. These, are, this is, these words are just a few chapters after Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, a long and lengthy discourse. And in the Beatitudes, Jesus says, Blessed are the poor, mm-hmm. the poor in spirit. And the poor in spirit, it has absolutely nothing to do with how much you have in your purse or wallet, how much your stock portfolio is, how many dollars an hour you make. To be poor in spirit is to have a repentant heart, to be sorry, contrite over your sin, and to cling to the promises of God. Unless you are this kind of poor, poor in spirit, The good news of the gospel runs off of you like water off a duck's back. To be poor is a great blessing. But again, we're not talking dollars and cents. We're talking to be poor of heart, poor of spirit, a broken and contrite heart God will not despise. You know, we should we should have taken about 19 segments here to look at this particular text because we're only halfway through and uh, we're we're just not going to be able to uh, we're not going to be able to do everything that we'd like to do with this particular text. But it says, "And blessed is the one who is not offended by me." I tend to think that this is the hermeneutical key to a proper understanding of this particular text. In what way, Pastor, is Jesus talking about people being offended by Jesus? <laughs> Boy, we could spend an hour and a half talking about that. Yeah, well, we got about um, two minutes. Yeah, well, uh, there's all sorts of ways people are offended by Jesus. There are those who are offended by the fact that he, uh, and I think this is maybe the most important one, where he has to die for our sin, where uh, the Jesus that we worship isn't Jesus my homeboy or uh, the, the good friend that I have, but rather Jesus who suffers, bleeds, and dies on the cross because I'm a sinner. Uh, that's offensive. Uh, I'm a sinner, you say. Uh, I do stuff that's wrong. Jesus has to die for me. I killed him by my sin. Yes, uh, that's the truth. That's probably the biggest way that we're offended by Jesus. There's other ways. You know, of course, people are offended by his word or the message that he preaches. When he calls sin, sin, um, you know, um, we, we, we like to create Jesus in our own image rather than let the Jesus of the Scriptures speak. The Jesus of the Scriptures is offensive in so many ways. The Jesus that we try to make uh, in our minds is much more palatable 
God wants us to worship the real Jesus, not the fake Jesus. One of, one of the things that uh, has become more clear to me the older that I get is the subtle way that people are offended by Jesus at this time of the year, you know, during this uh, Advent season, everybody in the world except the Christian church is celebrating Christmas already. And the subtle ways that people are offended at Jesus during Christmas. Um, You can turn on, I hate to always pick on the Hallmark Channel, but I'll do it anyway. You can turn on any Hallmark Christmas program, and you have Christmas in every way, shape, and form without the baby Jesus. You go to most Christmas concerts, especially those that are in uh, the public or the public school setting, and you have all kinds of Christmas without the baby Jesus. Now, thankfully, we, uh, in the name of culture, we uh, don't have that problem at the University of Nebraska, but it's probably just a matter of time. We have... uh, television programs that shockingly will edit Christmas carols. And I heard one uh, just the other day, and again, to name drop, it was Hawaii Five O. They ended their Christmas program a few years ago with Silent Night. Silent Night, Holy Night, all is calm, all is bright, sleep in heavenly peace. What did they leave out? Ron, John, uh, Ron virgin, virgin, mother and child, holy infant, so tender, so mild. They left out Jesus. People are offended by the fact that Jesus says, without him, you can't go to heaven. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. So the church either waters that down or they are the mark of that offense. Um. So what do we do? We take the model of John the Baptist. We are a faithful church. We are faithful pastors. And we continue to proclaim an unpopular but necessary message in season and out of season. We need to take a break. Sorry for going a little bit long on that segment. This is Proclaiming the One, Pastor Poppy, Pastor Moline, Vicar Bader. When we come back, we're going to take a look at God's instruction for faithful pastors. 1 Corinthians 4, 1 to 5. You are listening to KNNALP 95.7 FM, Lincoln, Nebraska. Welcome back to Proclaiming the One. Pastor Clint Poppy, Pastor Adam Oline, Vicar Albert Bader. We serve at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska. 
We would love to have you worship with us. We're located at 40, 3825 Wildbriar Lane, just north of 40th and Old Cheney. You can listen to our worship services live, both Sunday and Wednesday worship services on 95.7, The Cross, FMLP. And you can check out worship services, archives of this program, at home in your hymnal, table talks, many, many other uh, wonderful programs on the archive portion of our website, www.thecross957.org. One of these days I'm going to memorize that, Pastor. Uh, But here we are, back again on the third Sunday in Advent, and during the break I was uh, confessing to Pastor Moline and to Vicar Bader that uh, I have favorites, and I guess every pastor probably does too, but I have favorites with regard to certain Days, Sundays, festivals in the church year, and believe it or not, the third Sunday in Advent is one of my all-time favorites, and it has nothing to do with a pink candle. Uh, the epistle reading, 1 Corinthians 4, 1-5, God's instruction through Paul to the congregation at Corinth with regard to what does a faithful pastor and faithful congregation look like. Vicar? This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found trustworthy. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. I am not aware of anything against myself but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness, and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his condemnation from God. Yes, he will receive his commendation. That's all right. That's all right. Commendation. Two words are very close, but very different meanings. Um, So here we have Paul. And and this is an amazing section in 1 Corinthians 2, and we don't have time to unpack all of this. But this section here where he talks about uh, pastors, congregations, being stewards of the mysteries of grace, it really kind of comes out of nowhere. You know, at the end of chapter 3 and the rest of chapter 4, this uh, it's just like Paul has to say it. He's just got to get it out there. And we know that there are all kinds of problems, both in doctrine and practice, at the church in Corinth. They need to be addressed, and he just needs to remind people, why are you doing what you are doing? This is how one should regard us. Who is the us, Pastor? What is the referent? of that when we're talking about servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God? Well, immediately it's Paul and his uh, uh, fellow missionaries, if you will, Um, but ultimately it also has to do with all of those who are in the same office that Paul uh, and those missionaries were in, which is the office of pastor. Okay, so this is is an office of the holy ministry text. It is definitely an office of the holy ministry text. And so when Paul says, you ought to regard us, he's saying you ought to regard pastors as this. And the thing that he wants us to be uh, regarded as is servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Okay, let's unpack those. 
uh, one at a time. Pa- uh, Vicar, um, when we read in the scripture, servant, about 80% of the time, the Greek word is not servant. What is, uh, did you bring your Greek up here, uh, uh, yep. Pastor? Uh, what, what is it here? Here it is, huperetas. Uh, uh, which is is not the normal word. Uh, the normal word we think of is doulos, which means servant or slave. Uh, this one is huperetas. Um, and uh, just a second here, I'm getting that verse pulled up here. Um, it means servant or assistant or helper sort of a thing. Um, that's what that word has to do with it's in uh, all the Gospels uh, used oftentimes by Christ and and whatnot, Uh, but that's the word that's used here. Okay, so to be a servant of Christ, vicar, means that I am not a servant of who? Of myself. Oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. I love to serve myself. I have a master's degree in serving myself. Pastor Moline has a Ph.D. in serving himself. Um, Stick with what I'm good at. <laughs> yeah. uh, it comes quite naturally. It comes quite naturally. And anyone that is around a small child, you just wait, Vicar. You just wait for little Dawson when, uh, when he can. I mean, he's already doing it, although he can't quite verbalize it yet. But most of the time... The first word out of a baby's mouth is no, and the second word is mine. (laughs) Uh, This is a great example of that old Adam living and dwelling within us. The same thing is true for pastors. And God is teaching us here that if you're a pastor, and again, this is an office of the holy ministry text, so its first primary is about pastors and those who serve in that office. By extension, these words are not only for pastors, by extension, this is applied to every Christian because every Christian is a member of the royal priesthood. So to be a servant of Christ means I'm not going to serve the selfish desires of the flesh. And for pastors, serving the selfish desires of the flesh is pretty simple. I want people to like me. I will do anything and everything in the church, in my personal life, so that people like me. I am a servant. I am a slave to myself, to my pride, to my ego, to my bank account, my cruise fund, whatever. This is a constant temptation that is before pastors. Everybody wants to be liked. And sometimes when you're a faithful pastor, and it just it cuts right to the heart, when you have to speak the truth, you know that what will result from that truth is that people won't like you. And it hurts, but it is very, very real. This is what faithful John the Baptist did. It hurt him, too. Uh, cost him his head. And sometimes a faithful pastor, is uh, it costs him his paycheck. 
uh, retirement security with a call or a, an appointment uh, as a pastor. Sometimes it costs family. Sometimes it costs friends. Sometimes it costs dollars in the collection plate or numbers in the pew. Uh, closely connected to this, being a servant of Christ, is pastor a steward of the mysteries of God. Unpack that for us, would yeah. you please? In fact, um, it does have a relation to that word before that we, we've translated servant, uh, that word also being guard, uh, like the guard of the tomb uh, or the guards in the uh, uh, courtyard when Jesus is being tried. That's huparetas, uh, and and that's the servant who's keeping track of the things. Uh, and so we have that same thing here, oikonumas, uh, mysterion, theu, or steward of the mysteries of God. A steward is uh, is kind of like the one who takes care of the affairs of the house. And, uh, and the affairs then, uh, uh, even the word has the word house in there. The steward uh, is taking care then, in this case, of the mysteries of God. Or uh, if we translate that word, Musterion uh, into the Latin, it becomes sacramentum, uh, which we get our word sacrament from. And uh, so a steward of the sacraments of God, the one who keeps track of baptisms, uh, who performs the Lord's Supper on behalf of Christ. And through all these things, they are guarding Christ. They are watching uh, that Christ is the thing proclaimed and taught and uh, the central message of of what is done in church. And uh, that brings us back then to John the Baptist, who is pointing his uh, disciples to Christ. And that then is the job of the faithful pastor, is to make sure that when people come to church, they don't uh, think about how good-looking the pastor is or how nice his suit is or what a good singer he is uh, or uh, uh, even that he's funny and tells good jokes, but rather that they learn about their Lord and Savior Jesus because in the end, that's the important thing. You know, as good a pastor as uh, uh, Pastor Poppy or I might be, we can't get you into heaven. We didn't die for your sins. Uh, we can't rescue you from sin, death, and the devil. Only Jesus can do that. And so it doesn't do me any good to build up myself in your eyes. Uh, the only thing that is worthwhile for you is if I point you to the true Savior, who is Jesus Christ, our Lord. And there's only one pastor who will be your pastor forever. Uh, and that's not Poppy or Moline. Uh, it certainly wasn't uh, Morundi or Burnt or any of the pastors that you had growing up, they're not your pastor anymore, right? Why? Because they retired, or they died, or they moved on to another call. This is the nature of human beings. But there is one pastor who will be your pastor forever, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, um, we don't have a lot of time left, and again, we can't unpack this passage the, the way that I would like to. But when we're talking about mysteries, you made the, the wonderful connection there to the sacraments, uh, and we can do that very clearly because of the Latin translation of the word mysterium, uh, sacramentum, uh, and that's good. When we're talking about mysteries, we are talking about it on really two different levels. One, just exactly the way you talked about it, the mysteries which are the sacraments. Because how can Christ's body and blood come to us in, with, and under bread and wine? That's a mystery. 
How can baptism be a washing of regeneration and new life in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ? I don't know. It's a mystery. I believe it because God says so. We also have the mystery of the Trinity. How can God be one God and three persons? It's a mystery. How can Jesus be true God and true man all at the same time? I don't know. It's a mystery. How can God die on Good Friday? And how can a human being, Jesus, rise from the dead on Easter Sunday? These things are not reasonable. They are mysteries. A faithful pastor proclaims the mysteries of God, both word and sacrament. And the world is going to accuse us and say, that's not reasonable. And you know what? The reasonableness of God is greater than the logic, the emotion, the whims of human beings. Oh, that God would bless us with faithful pastors who will proclaim that message. Jesus, for us, forgiveness, life, and salvation in and only in his name. Oh, getting fired up here. Um, Vicar, would you uh, do us the honor and bring things to a close by praying the collect of the day, third Sunday in Advent? Let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we implore you to hear our prayers and to lighten the darkness of our hearts by your gracious visitation. For you live and reign with the Father and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. 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 The visitation of our Lord Jesus Christ, another mystery to unpack and unfold. This is Proclaiming the One. For Pastor Moline and Vicar Bader, I am Pastor Clint Poppy. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll be back again next week when we bring our Advent message to a close. You might just hear a little bit more about John the Baptist. Thank you, and God bless.